0: Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Because of the size he was and how fast, like the speed he got up to, he almost needed, it's like he needed all that extra runway just to decelerate from what he had just done
2: to the Seahawks. It's November 87, LA Raiders at the Seattle Seahawks. This is Remember That Game, the podcast about sporting events that take you on a journey and maybe chart the path of the zeitgeist. I'm your host, Thomas Semerick, and my guest is Ray Delahante, whose YouTube channel City Nerd explores urbanism and features some great videos on how sporting venues fit their city. Some say Seattle's old kingdom visually resembled a tomb, but the building felt alive on ABC's Monday Night Football with Seattle in the AFC driver's seat as Bo Jackson's debut tour rode into town. Ray, did this bring you back to a place in time with your plucky Seattle sports teams and their great throwbacks, hosting your perennial Western overlords from Los Angeles?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Seattle um, and still... To this day, even though I haven't lived there for a couple of decades, you know, I'm primarily a Seattle sports fan. And at the time your, your fandom kind of revolved somewhat around rivalries, particularly with Los Angeles based teams, either, you know, the Lakers, uh, relative to how the Sonics were doing or, um, or in this era, I think the Raiders were kind of the key rival for the Seahawks.
2: L.A. had the winningest franchises of the previous 10 years in the Raiders and Lakers as far as titles in their respective league. But here in late 87, did it feel like an ascendant time in Seattle as a city and a sports town? And how much did the shadow of L.A. loom? Yeah, I don't know if it felt uh,
1: ascendant overall. I mean, I was a lifelong Sonics fan and I still would be if they hadn't moved to Oklahoma City. Um, And the Sonics were certainly not ascendant in the mid to late 90s although they were going to get there or the mid to late 80s the seahawks on the other hand um you know ever since the inception of the the team in what 77 i think they really sold out basically every game at the king dome and even though they weren't very good at the beginning people still embraced them and supported them maybe because you know it's a little bit of a football town just because of the the University of Washington Huskies uh, play in the city of Seattle. And so people had a taste for football already, but the Seahawks started actually become, becoming competent in like uh, 1983, I think when they, they finally broke through and they went back the next year, Um, they had at least average or better teams for most of the mid eighties. And so it did feel like maybe, maybe we were going to get the upper hand, at least on the Raiders, if not on the Broncos where. You know, John Elway was really putting his mark uh, on that team. At least we could maybe get the upper hand on the Raiders. That's kind of the way the, the Seattle sports landscape felt at that point.
2: They actually do edge the Raiders in the 84 wild card, but Raiders overwhelmed Seattle in the 83 AFC title at LA Memorial Coliseum, built downtown in the 1920s, back when LA had more urbanist flair. Uh, how does the Raiders home from 82 to 94 there compare on urbanism to the new home of pro football in Los Angeles with SoFi?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of like I kind of like Memorial Coliseum, um, you know, just you know, a long history of, you know, hosting Olympics and kind of well, maybe not that famously, but but the Dodgers first played there when they moved to to la so like the 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 pictures i don't know how much video there is but the pictures you see of like <laughs> what they had to do to the configuration of memorial coliseum to make it um uh useful for baseball are are pretty incredible the uh, i believe the left field fence that they erected kind of puts the the fenway park green monster to shame <laughs> um but but as far as you know the, the the setting you know it's kind of on a it's kind of like a exposition park campus so it's not really nestled into a street grid the way even like um whatever they're calling staples center these days is um so you know los angeles has in some ways uh kind of improved their uh, approach to you know citing sports arenas but i do not love <laughs> the setup of sofi stadium right now um i believe at some point they will connect um, they're, they're growing rail network, um, close to close to SoFi, but it's not there yet. And so it's kind of like the way LA has always been where you really, you really have to drive to go wherever you're going to go. And, and so going to see the Rams or the chargers at this point is, is no different.
2: They, they want to get that rail exit within like 20 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. On this Monday night, we're at the Kingdom in Seattle when, Gifford Michaels and Deerdorf bring us in can hear it and feel that energy as if Seattle's been railgating. The energy for building passenger rail would lag a bit, but start getting toward there eventually uh, in Seattle. Raiders fly in on a seven-game losing streak, started 2-0 before the strike, replacement players, and then the season eventually got away, but they're coached by Tom Flores, two-time Super Bowl champ, with the Raiders. They got their Hall of Famers back from strike, and Howie Long... James Lofton, Mike Haynes, Marcus Allen, who tonight is joined in the backfield by his Techno Bowl teammate, Bo Jackson, <laughs> in, two, in two back sets. Uh, just that month, Bo finally made his way over, for, not from the picket lines, but from the Kansas City Royals for his first NFL snap. Uh, Brian Bosworth had some stuff to say about it. Seahawks coach Chuck Knox said pregame that the Raiders have the best 3-7 and team he's ever seen, and thanks to Bo, all the hype's with LA again uh ray how eager were you to see seattle make a statement
1: yeah so you know again this is this is coming off probably like kind of like a four season stretch where you know chuck knox was at the helm people felt good about that they loved um you know kurt warner in the backfield and steve Largent out wide they had they had they had grown everybody had grown to embrace dave craig at quarterback so they had kind of this core um that had had uh have Cinderella success in '83 and '84 a little bit, um you know some some mixed results against the Raiders. But you know you you did feel like coming into this game, and it was a weird season because of the strike. But they were seven and three, I think, coming into this game. I can't remember if they were. In first at this time, I know, uh, John Elway was having a, John Elway would win the MVP this year, I think. Um, and so the, the, the Broncos are very good, but, but, you know the Seahawks were looking good for possibly winning the division or at least getting a wild card spot and going back to the playoffs, which they'd missed the previous two years, even though there were 500 or I think they had, they had a 10 and six season or an eight or eight season. Um, so, you know, the, the place was going to be rocking, um, and. Not only that, but despite the strike, we felt like we had a team. We had the core, and then we had this new addition, Brian Bosworth, in the um, in the middle of the the linebacking core. Um, he was going to be the centerpiece um, that that really kind of put us over the top. Um, you know, maybe maybe we can get back to being twelve and four, 13 and three, something like that. Um so but that was the feeling going into that game is uh, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna put our stamp on this one. Um, we're gonna take care of the Raiders and we're gonna see how we can finish this
2: season. AFC West, Chargers aging Dan Fouts at 8-3. Apparently they made some hay in the replacement player weeks, and Broncos were at seven, three and one. And we're coming into Monday night here, so eight and three would put Seattle in the driver's seat, but a razor's edge. A good start for them as nine-point home favorites. Dave Craig has a glow-up compared to the 83 AFC title when he fell apart against LA. Production crew had no respect for the guy, introduced <laughs> him as a relative unknown, and the production photo for their quarterback looked like it was a still from a home movie, got the ball cap shade over his eyes. That broadcast, otherwise delightful. Dick Enberg and Merlin Olson at LA Coliseum with the Olympic Gateway statues behind the open East end zone. Hard to beat that pregame backdrop. But here in Seattle at the Kingdom, Seattleites going nuts when Craig hit Daryl Turner to go up by a touchdown. It made me want to run around Seattle in a throwback Kenny Easley jersey with the silver, royal blue, and apple green. Did you rock any jerseys back in the day? <laughs> you know, I, did, uh, I, I, was, I was a pretty big Seahawks
1: fan, but I was not a Jersey wearer. I I was known, I was known to rock a Sonics Jersey from time to time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did
2: not actually own a Kenny Easley or Kurt Warner Jersey at that point, the kingdom has the gray concrete, but it, it can make those jerseys pop out even more. Maybe it seemed like a fun place to be on the broadcast for all its faults. And many were pointed out when it was eventually demolished in the new Seahawks stadium placed directly on the spot. Do you think there's been a growing demand over the years for Seattle's dynamics as a city and how the sports stadiums uh, weave into the urban fabric?
1: Yeah. I mean, I have good memories of the kingdom. You know, it's not, not beautiful uh, by any stretch from the exterior. Um, It's kind of like the ultimate, I guess you would call brutalist stadium, just very undecorated concrete on the outside with, without much relationship to the surrounding area, which, really it was almost all surface parking lot at that point but on the inside it got loud i mean it was designed almost to be loud uh, that that sound bounced off the concrete everywhere which was kind of great and a big home field advantage for the seahawks maybe not for the mariners as much because they didn't draw the crowds generally um until like 1995 anyway um but great great for great for sports events um notar- notoriously terrible for concerts i believe uh i believe led zeppelin played there i think the rolling stones played there at one point and it was it was uh purportedly just horrendous for for musical events um so yeah i mean there there, there are things about the kingdom that i miss but you know they uh, i feel like the, um you know, the city's done a great job with the kind of the, um, the stadium district that they've created with Lumen Field and, and T-Mobile Park uh, right next door to each other. And they've actually started to fill in um, some of the surface parking around there. So now, now you've got some condos and office towers and apartments and a lot more businesses and places to kind of hang out before and after the game than certainly than what you did um, back, uh, back when the kingdom was still in existence.
2: Didn't even make it 25 years. Uh, lead designer Jack Christensen seemed a little miff. Uh, went to the papers and said, "Hey, this is a, a feat of engineering, and we're just going to throw it away." Uh, it, it took the Parisians a while to come around to the Eiffel Tower, by the way. And <laughs> is this is this what he said? Is this is this a quote? Eiffel Tower, Kingdom. You know, it it was another engineer quoted in the Seattle Times piece. <laughs> Yeah, I would direct everyone to Ray's channel, uh, City Nerd on YouTube and, and Nebula. A lot of great on this topic. I'll, I'll link in the show notes. Uh, but the Empire strikes back. Technically, that's an 80s movie. In very Raider fashion, on a deep strike to James Lofton, Raiders tie it up 7-7. Seven to seven. The stadium is still raucous. Seahawks running back Kurt Warner won AFC Offensive Player of the Year his rookie season in 83. Wasn't taking his sweet time in Major League Baseball. And there's no real indication yet the Raiders will run it down their throats for 356 yards tonight. It does not seem to portend that quite yet. Uh, Seahawks are getting the ball back. And Dan Deerdorf says in the broadcast, if you're in the kingdom, if you're the visitor, if you're behind, this is a bad, bad place to have to play a football game. One of those circular concrete relics of the 60s and 70s. What did those get right and wrong about co-location in general and what happened to them? Yeah, I mean, well, what happened to them? I and mean, there used to be so many, you know,
1: old, Bush Stadium, uh, River Riverfront Park in Cincinnati. I think Baltimore had had a, a shared uh, multi purpose stadium. You know, the the Metrodome in Minneapolis was a shared stadium. You know, ultimately they were kind of uh, they kind of didn't work that well for either you have this circular configuration you know football isn't meant to be played in a circular configuration it has sidelines people want to be focused on the on the 50 and be facing the field and for for baseball it's a diamond and people people kind of want to be be able to face home plate and the pitching mound where that the action is so that they they don't they don't really share the same uh, configuration needs at all. And I know I, w- I would get an argument from Oakland fans, um, who, um, who still, I think love, uh, whatever they're calling Oakland Alameda County Coliseum right now. Um, but I just don't, I you know, I just, I just feel like, you know, that their, their days were always numbered and, you know, and maybe, maybe it begins with the opening of, um, Oriole park, Camden yards, um, where. You know the, the Orioles uh, built a um, it's a purpose built baseball park, which became a huge hit and somewhat replicated in, in other cities as as the years went on. Cleveland, Denver, um, you know, St. Louis, uh, m- most cities went when went out and built kind of a more of an old fashioned traditional ballpark. And football kind of ended up going the same way too. Every 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 franchise wanted a football specific stadium to play in um and while it's not as efficient in terms of the use of valuable urban real estate as as it would be to to have um baseball and football teams co-locate in the same place it just it's just a matter of the configuration doesn't work and there's just too much money involved in um you know selling expensive seats in a venue that people really want to be at and so so these multiple multi-purpose venues often with AstroTurf um just aren't really what you see anymore
2: Seeing the players fall in the astro turf is always kind of jarring compared to what we see with the, the grass today. And yeah, or even the field
1: turf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Yeah. But Bo Jackson would, after a tough first drive where he fumbled it, now he's feeling it first on the ground and then in pass route. Bo shakes a safety on this NFL all 80s team in Kenny Easley before sliding under that outfield looper from Mark Wilson, 14 7 Raiders. How extraordinary was Bo, and is there a modern comparison for what he's doing and, and how he's capturing the imagination?
1: Yeah, it's such a, he's such an interesting guy and an interesting, amazing, phenomenal athlete. And I don't think he'll, I just don't think he won't ever be forgotten. I mean, people know, people who don't know anything about football, they know that name. Um, and it's just very interesting because he was, probably better known as a college football player than as a college baseball player at, uh, Auburn in Alabama. Um, but coming out of college, he really wanted to focus on baseball. You know, he signed with the, the Royals. I think, I think he came out of school in 85 signed with the Royals in 86 really didn't want to play football. Um, and then ultimately i think what the raiders drafted him in the 87 draft even though he had said i don't want to play football they drafted him and al davis the owner said you know what you, you can prioritize baseball just just come on over when you're done with baseball season and i think that was something bode didn't hadn't really considered he didn't think an nfl team would be okay with him doing that um so so he we went for it, which, you know, I think is a mixed thing. We got to see him play some great football, obviously, which I, th- I think we'll talk about more in this game. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in, in the end, you know, maybe it would have been better for him personally and professionally to, to just keep playing baseball. Um, he was so good at both. But I think we probably want to get to a couple more of the plays in this
2: game before I talk more about that. He'll uh, make a couple more plays. <laughs> yeah. That, that touchdown by Bo, though, sliding catch, it was sandwiched by 2-3 and out drives for the Seahawks. And so they're down 14-7. But Steve Largent does extend his catch streak to an NFL record of 148 games, held every major receiving record until Jerry Rice got about halfway through his career, uh, well before he finished out with the Seahawks and Raiders. Before uh, the Raiders left Oakland Alameda Coliseum for the second time, this time to Vegas, you've opined on the state of transit oriented development in Vegas and made some on location videos when you lived there last year how does allegiant stadium compare to the previous uh raiders homes oh gosh i mean cuz we have to go back to so yeah
1: i'm just not a huge fan of Oklahoma meeting coliseum i know that there's some there's transit access there you can you can get there on the on the bard but it's it's one of these places that's just surrounded by an enormous amount of parking and at one point it was kind of shared with uh and I don't know, was at Oracle Arena at that point where, you know, the Golden State Warriors won championships there. Um, but then the, the Warriors even went to San Francisco. So now it's, it's just the A's the last couple of years. So not a huge fan of that stadium setup. LA Memorial Coliseum, pretty good. I mean, fine. Um, and then Allegiant, uh, you know, I, haven't, I have not been to an event at Allegiant. It's, a, <laughs> it's an extremely conspicuous stadium because it's all black. Um, and it's right there kind of hovering over you as you come up I-15 in, into Vegas. Um, I actually lived, <laughs> it was kind of fun, I lived pretty close to the Raiders practice facility in henderson nevada which is also basically an all-black kind of like a death star looking building um and if you kind of if you kind of go up close to it there's there's i think there's like some sort of eternal flame torch and like there's probably like a statue of al davis or something commitment to excellence um but you know it's it's vegas vegas doesn't really have a lot in the way of a transit system it's it's a place that probably should have some sort of L or subway running up the strip because there's so much uh there's so much demand for travel uh between the airport and downtown and all of the enormous resorts in between and and Allegiant is situated a little bit off that it's probably a couple blocks west of i-15 which is a couple blocks west of the strip but it's still walkable from like the mandalay bay in fact there's even like a signed walkway like to Allegiant stadium from mandalay bay which is kind of at the south end of the strip so it's not completely inaccessible from all the places you would probably go if you were in vegas and it's kind of notorious for being for, for drawing a lot of out-of-town fans, like people who love to come to Vegas to watch their team. So like if the Broncos are in town or something like that, there'll be a ton of Denver fans in town because, you know, it's a, good, it's a good excuse to come to Vegas.
2: I also urge folks to check out Ray's great on-location vignettes. He's no longer in Vegas, moving from town to town. Love the one in Montreal, uh, Montreal which will be only a few days old when this uh, episode comes out. And Back from Quebec to the Pacific Northwest, the Seahawks are forced to punt again and actually do a good job of pinning the Raiders down inside their own 10. So you could play field position. That is, if this wasn't just giving Bo more space to pick up straight line speed. Beats Brian Bosworth to the edge, who uh, was talking about how they were going to contain him. He was, e- even from the first game of his rookie year that season on, on the NBC broadcast, Dick Enberg said, uh, he's a legend in his own mind. Got in the media talking about how yeah, they'd stop Bo before this game. Well, Bo beats Bosworth to the edge. Uh, more Raiders, uh, and he's, he's off to the tunnel. Once Bo's running down the sideline, the rest of the defense are outside the squared television frame. <laughs> um, the camera would pan to catch Bo taking it all the way into the tunnel after a decade of not seeing the seahawks run out of that tunnel for any playoff games la would then nearly take the team in the mid-90s uh, microsoft's paul allen bought the seahawks and surveyed his options after after the raiders returned to oakland in 95 seattle approves the new stadium and seahawks stay put is there a chain of events where say Bo isn't running through that tunnel on Monday Night Football, and the Kingdom hosts some great playoff memories in '87. That maybe the Kingdom isn't rubble by the year 2000.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think I think the Kingdom was destined for the Rebel pile, and unfortunately, a lot of a lot of the the highlights in the Kingdom, <laughs> the most memorable ones, are often from the visiting team. Mm. Um, and in this case, I mean that's it's it's an all time. highlight, I think for NFL fans generally and low light for, for Seahawks fans, because Bo Bo was, he, he was a big, strong running back, but he had so much flat out speed when he got up to his peak velocity and he just runs right by Seattle secondary players. I mean, it was just jaw dropping. And so him running into the tunnel is almost like because of the size he was and how fast, like, the speed he got up to, he almost needed – it's like he needed all that extra runway just to decelerate from what he had just done to the Seahawks. And so it was – that was a pretty tough moment, I think, for Seahawks fans. And, you know, as far as uh, the Seahawks fortunes, uh, you know, after after this game, you know, it's probably determined a little bit more by – I think at this point the Broncos are probably – have have the upper hand on the seahawks anyway so i don't know if there's really a scenario where where the seahawks have too much more success than what they did have um which isn't a lot until really like pete carroll enters the picture in in 2010 or so um so yeah i think uh for a lot of reasons the the kingdom is already destined for the the wrecking ball, I think it it really starts with with the tiles falling from the the ceiling during what the 95 Mariners season, I think, where they actually had to play a bunch of their games on the road, their home games on the road because they they could not play in the kingdom at all. So, you know, the, 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 the writing was kind of on the wall at that point.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
2: Bosworth also burned on that long run, but it would actually be several indignities into the night for Seattle before that happens. Among an era of indignities at the hands of Los Angeles, mentioned the AFC title in January 84, uh, and that later that year, the Coliseum would also host the Summer Olympics. The 94 World Cup comes to the States, and the Rose Bowl out in Pasadena got the final. Brazil, Italy, 3 2 penalty kicks. Seattle wasn't thrown. Not one bone. Couldn't get a group stage match, but Hey, for 2026, Seattle has graduated to a world cup town. How well is their infrastructure set up for this compared to the past? Yeah. Oh,
1: very well. I think I actually got to go to, um, I think they had the Copa America, which is typically just the teams from the South American nations, but I believe in 20, what was it? 2016, I think. The the, they expanded the Copa America to include like the USA, Mexico, like Panama, Haiti, like like, I think six extra North American and Caribbean teams, and they actually played it at stadiums in the U.S. So I actually got a, I think I got like a uh, a a bundle where I was able to go see all the games at it might have been Quest Field at that point, but Lumen Field now. So um, you know, I got to see. Uh I think I got to see Argentina play, Haiti. So I got to see Messi play. I got to see the US team play. And you know, Seattle's a very good soccer town. Um the Sounders do very well there. The um uh the OL Rain, the the women's team do really well there as well. Um so it's it's gonna it's gonna be a great it's gonna be a great place for for World Cup games, and it's close into downtown, so that's great for you know people. People visit from all, all over the world to come to that event, um, and so that's going to be a great venue for for people to to spend time. In the center of the city and go out and shop and eat and, and be able to you can you, know, you can walk to to lumen field from downtown or you can take you can take the link light rail train too. so so I think I think they're set up really well for that but yeah the kingdom. Not so much I actually did see the sound the old nasl sounders um, play at the kingdom at one point um, And it was just that's just not uh, soccer has very different demands for you can't really play it. I mean, good, good players will just flat out reviews to play it on field turf. There's too much chance of injury. The ball doesn't do what it's supposed to do. You can't make the same, uh, the same moves on the field as you can on an actual turf pitch. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but yeah, my, my, uh, my expectations
2: are pretty high for, for that, for that world cup. It's something to look forward to. Uh, The Kingdom did get Final Fours uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, and the NBA All-Star Game there in 87. But for that game, three Lakers were initially selected and no Sonics. Lakers coach Pat Riley had to add Tom Chambers as an injury replacement to put some respect on Seattle's name as the host city, Tom Chambers' All-Star Game MVP. And And the Sonics had to play all over town in the 80s, only NBA team to play following a rain delay got kind of slippery from the sounds of it. Uh, from reports from the, that that day, a little dangerous. Uh, how well has Seattle pulled off home games for various sports when venues were under construction, renovations, scheduling conflicts, and is this sort of load sharing an indicator of how equipped a city is to host a major international sporting events? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's a lot to ask, but Seattle. And Tacoma have always
1: had pretty good redundancy in sports venues, which has come in handy, I think. When um, <laughs> well, I mean, so the Sonics uh, often relied on what was originally Seattle Center Coliseum, and then later renamed Key Arena, and now it's Climate Pledge Arena where the where the Kraken play. The um NHL expansion team you know that that Sonics team in 87 was actually quite a bit of fun um I believe uh and that you know that was always my that was always my franchise I was kind of always kind of first first and foremost a Sonics fan Tom Chambers Xavier McDaniel and Dale Ellis I think all averaged like over 22 points in that 1987 season which is pretty remarkable I mean it was kind of a high scoring era I think um in nba history but yeah the the idea that they only were able to have one all-star and even then as a replacement is is kind of funny if i remember right tom Chambers also participated in the dunk contest i don't think he he won it i think mj won uh... (laughs)
2: but was that did he win i I think i think mj won uh but that's yeah that's that's a tough matchup for tom (laughs) it's a tough it's a tough era i think probably dominique wilkins was was
1: probably still pretty good at that point too i would think um yeah so uh but as far as the you know the the venues you know the the sonics had periods i think even in their first season um they put there was there was a second arena at seattle center which i think it was just called the arena at one point and later it was called mercer arena and i don't think it exists anymore um that was like an eight or nine thousand seat venue um and i think they played a few games there and then they played at the kingdom i think from from their championship season in 79 to 84 or 85 i think um and the the Coliseum underwent a renovation. Then it underwent another renovation when they transformed it into Key Arena in the early '90s, I think. And so the Sonics played. They went down to Tacoma and they played their home games at the Tacoma Dome, which is kind of a weird hybrid. You know, it's 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 a it's good for it's good for basketball. It's a little cavernous, I think. Um, but but uh, yeah, so they played there as well. And then the Seahawks. Um, when, when, uh, the kingdom was being demolished and they were, you know, building the new stadium, you know, they were able to go use Husky stadium, uh, up at the university north of the ship canal. So, um, so there's always been kind of this redundancy in Seattle sports venues. That's allowed for, for these disruptions to occur. Mm
2: The Sonics get the title in 79. The Lakers stop the repeat in 80 uh, in the Western Conference Finals, and the Sonics wouldn't get another title And taking off for Oklahoma City. Your videos on transit-oriented sports venues tend to feature high marks for Seattle venues. Is Seattle... Do they at least get over the hump the Western Conference champs of uh, sports urbanism?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it depends what you call the the Western Conference. I kind of like... I kind of like vancouver bc's setup, even though you know we can't talk about like an nfl team or a major league baseball team or the nba any, anymore although the grizzlies did but they're pretty well set up for you know their mos and and cfl teams um the bc lions play in what is it uh i forget what the names of all of these are is at the rogers center it's 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 kind of their domed stadium which they've renovated recently and then the uh, um the connects of the NHL um also play I think a block away from there and it's extremely well integrated into downtown and and well connected to their excellent uh SkyTrain system there so I do like Vancouver a lot I don't know if, so I don't know if I would give Seattle the nod over Vancouver but Seattle is always um they've always located their sports venues centrally you know the Dome was right down in pioneer square and then when they demolished it they put the baseball and and uh and football stadiums there too and then you know the the sonics and now the kraken have always played at seattle center which is kind of on the north side of the central area it's almost let's say it's almost necessitated by kind of the geography of seattle it's an interesting city in that it's located on an isthmus and then you know some of the more affluent suburbs are ac- across a big lake with floating bridges on it so you don't want to you don't want to test the traffic too much if you can you probably don't want to try to send everybody out to the suburbs and then bring them back you probably want to have things as central as possible to avoid um kind of the 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 transportation capacity bottlenecks that are sort of inherent
2: in in the way Seattle's geography is set up L.A., a little different geography there. Yet yeah, this is supposed to be Seattle's moment at home, but in L. Michael's halftime package, he's going out to Raiders practice. Like, they knew it wasn't going to be Seattle's time yet. Uh, not to view L.A. as the enemy on the West Coast. We're all brothers in high-speed intercity rail someday, at least when a new DOT map drops. San Diego to Vancouver, baby. And likewise on your channel – you produce content for our intercity rail fantasies from uh, time to time. What major uh, American sports cities would benefit the most from finally being linked by high-speed passenger rail?
1: Any of these cities where you have, you have kind of built in rivalries where the cities are close enough to, you know, that you could, you could get between them. Um, you could probably drive it in three hours or four hours kind of thing, but it's really, I don't know, it's really a distance you don't want to fly because it make, it's kind of ridiculous. So there, there are definitely links um, where it, it would really make sense to have a rail connection where you could kind of party on the train um, and, you know, and, and kind of pregame on your way. Um, I, I think Dallas and Houston yeah. makes a lot of sense um, because, you know, they're uh, maybe not not in the NFL as much, but, you know, they're they're NBA rivals. There, you know, Texas and the, the Astros and the Rangers playing the same division in major league baseball. So that would be great as far as, um, you know, kind of sports road tripping, you know, in, in, in England, you know, in the, in the premier league, the train is kind of how you get, get to those away matches. Right. Um, and it would be cool to have, you know, the U S is bigger, obviously, but you definitely have pairs of cities in the U S where that would make a lot of sense. I would think, you know, LA to Vegas. Um, especially as Vegas apparently keeps adding professional sports teams. I think that makes a lot of sense, not just for, not just for the sports rivalries, like the, you know, the chargers and the Raiders or, you know, the, the Kings and the golden Knights or whatever. Um, but, but just for, for pure tourism, like the number of people who drive or fly from LA to, to Las Vegas for, for weekends. Um, it just, it just, that one just makes a
2: whole lot of sense to me. In Michael's entertaining halftime package, we get a feel for how our SoCal kings of the 80s had gotten so down bad in 87. Marcus Allen lamented, quote, we needed a little problem here and a problem there. Keep everybody loose. You got some fun shots from the production of guys like Ted Hendricks, Lyle Alzado, John Matuzek. The cover of Matuzek's autobiography, Cruisin' With Twos, uh, released that year, actually had a similarly macho 80s cinema aesthetic to the Boz poster you sent me, uh, <laughs> did it feel at the time, like the Boz could give Seattle that edge and attitude they needed to get over the hump, the kind LA teams possessed. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, I feel like I
1: probably had a little more skepticism about it, but I think in reality, all of us, cause me and all my friends were, were big into the Seahawks, particularly starting in 83, when they started to really show signs of life and, you know, even though. The team was coming off a couple seasons without a playoff appearance they were still again you know 500 or better um you always had pretty um you always felt still felt fairly optimistic for the next year and then you know in 87 so what happened i i had to actually go back and look it's like how did they end up with bosworth because he was such a big college star and he had he had forgotten the draft i think because he did not want to get drafted by what was it the indianapolis colts i think who were just dreadful in that period um and so he went into the supplemental draft and i'm not sure how seattle lucked into getting the first pick in the supplemental draft but they did they won that lottery or whatever i remember winning the lottery and all of us thinking we're going to get brian bosworth we might go to the super bowl that's that's how it felt you, you felt like this was a guy, cause you know, in college, I think he had won he had won two, Butkus awards, you know, the linebacker of the year back to back before coming out of the university of Oklahoma. And he was all over ESPN. You know, every, every Saturday, right. Making huge plays. He was very outgoing. You know, he took his helmet off. He had, you know, he had like a Mohawk or whatever. He had this very eighties kind of, you know, if you remember like Jim McMahon with the bears, it was, it's the same kind of thing, just very brash, very outspoken. You knew he was going to look good on TV, you know, you, you knew he was going to get all kinds of advertising deals, but you also felt like, yeah, he's a legit, a really good athlete. He seems like a guy who has a ton of leadership quality for, for whatever that's worth. And so you did feel like he was somebody who maybe he's not going to pull. He's not going to carry us to the super bowl, but he could be. You felt like he really could be a big missing piece of of putting the Seahawks on that next level.
2: Uh, Bo also had an interesting path. Bucks actually drafted him first overall in 86, and he's like, nope, not going. He sleeps through the 87 draft, and Raiders are able to get him in the seventh round and and pay him a ton and say, hey, come by whenever you want. So that worked out pretty well for Bo. Uh, Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I hope you put this 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 Land of Boz poster in your show notes because it was kind of legendary that rookie season. That was just part of the hype package. I think for for the Boz was you know back in the eighties, you know people used to put posters of sports stars up on their wall. You know Michael Jordan, obviously, but you know there that that was what you did. You had you had these wall posters that you put up, and so um, and, you know they came out with this poster, and it was the land of boz so it was a play on the wizard of oz um which is partly i think seattle i don't know i don't know if it too often goes by this nickname but but you know there, there are times when it's called the emerald city forever just because of how green it is i think um because of all the rain honestly um but the, but the poster has him with this kind of like dorothy who i think was actually like a playboy playmate, if I oh, remember. so it's this kind of sexualized dorothy and then boz and like a cutoff football jersey and kind of kind of trampling over the remains of something that kind of looks like uh a raider uh, like a wicked witch witch of the west raiders person and like somebody with like kind of like an orange helmet with a seven on it who i think is supposed to be john elway and then somebody who looks like they're in a chief's uniform so so bosworth really lording it over all of the seahawks Hated rivals which you can't actually use i think the actual nfl uniforms because of, of copyright but they, they they try to they try to present it that way as much as possible and just extremely over the top and corny poster but you know i think at that point we were all we we're all kind of bought into it. it's like you know whatever you know this 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 can
2: be the guy let's just go along with it the dog and and it seemed like a pretend family too <laughs> And the-, <laughs> yeah. the, the the little Boskins or whatever it is, yeah. And uh, it seemed like multiple movie symbols being mixed in there—Wizard of Oz, but also it could be a, a poster for Back to the Future or Maybe. an action movie uh, mixed in one oh yeah and that was that was a big deal back then too because part of the part of the raiders seahawks rivalry
1: was i remember they had it was either like towels or signs that they would bring out and this is pretty cool in 83 and 84 when when the rivalry really heated up but it was uh i think it was raiders busters and so it was a play on ghostbusters with uh. the the little circle with the slash through it except instead of being a ghost it was uh it was like a Raiders helmet or whatever, or a Raiders logo with a slash through it. And there was a sign that says Raiders busters. I don't know. In retrospect, extremely, extremely corny. But <laughs> it was just one of those things that made sense at the time and
2: everybody bought into it. Pure 1987 distilled for historians uh, yep. <laughs> like us here. The yeah, Seahawks seemed like they might be finding their edge, their attitude, and Bo Jackson would put an end to that. Raiders get the ball coming out of the half, 27-7. Bo glides for 42 yards to get L.A. once again in scoring position. Third and goal from the two. Jackson catches the toss and seems like he may take it outside again. Nope. Cuts downhill right through Boz and into the end zone. Literally tells him to bring bus fare next time. And perhaps in defiance, Seattle would finally start pushing for more passenger rail development after that, the superior mode. Uh, How else did the Boz quake, reverberate on the ground in the Seattle sports scene. And was this the rock, was this rock bottom or were there more candidates for the nadir as uh, Seattle climbed uh, out of LA shadow over the coming decades?
1: Yeah. I mean, th- this was at least one of the nadirs. I mean, what happens here is, you know, <laughs> to his credit, Brian Bosworth actually gets to the place that he needs to get to, to fill that gap and wrap Bo Jackson up. And I think he's got, I don't know, like if the, if the stats are right, he's got like 20 pounds on Bo Jackson. And what you would see these days, I think in that situation where, where the running back cuts it back inside is if they get one-on-one with a linebacker, they're going to put like a little juke on or some, some sort of move and, and try to wrong fit the linebacker and just go around them. And it may work or it may not. <laughs> Instead, Bo Jackson just kind of puts his shoulder down and just goes right through him. And it, I don't know. It, it, it's, 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 it's just, um, it's, it's, again, it's kind of a testament to it. Cause he, he's already displayed his speed in the game on the, the 90, 90 yard touchdown run or whatever, but this, this also, it just kind of shows his power and his explosiveness to just kind of launch his shoulder into this linebacker who, and Bosworth was a good athlete, but Bo Jackson just bowls him over and tramples him into the end zone, just one-on-one. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a, it's kind of a humiliation. Um, and the sense I always got was, you know, growing up in Seattle, it's always, it's always a it's a very nice place. It's a very polite place. It's somewhat passive. You know, if you drive around Seattle, you know, the joke is always like, if you come to a four way stop, like nobody will go because everybody's waiting for the other person to go. Um, So it's kind of that attitude and you had hoped that, you know, you know, that, particularly football it just requires a lot more aggressiveness and and kind of swagger and you were hoping bosworth brought that to this yachts. and you know it just became clear if it wasn't clear at other points it was clear in this game that la still had one up on on seattle just in a, a more general way you know there were other nadirs and seattle sports um you know the the Sonics, you know, having the best record in the NBA, and but losing in the first round to the um, the Denver Nuggets with Dikembe Mutombo famously clutching the ball on on the and rolling around on the floor in a key arena after winning Game Five. That might that might be rock bottom as well. Although the Sonics come back and they don't win a championship, but they give they give the Bulls a good run. The seventy two win Bulls a good run. Um, there's always this question in the background of, you know, does, is it just a matter of Seattle doesn't have the swagger they need? And, and I think over, over the years that, you know, Seattle, Seattle, Seattle kind of rises from this in some ways, you know, it becomes a tech hub, you know, Microsoft becomes synonymous with home commute computing later on, you know, there's there's Amazon, um, Seattle. The Seattle music scene really takes hold in the early '90s. Um, you know, at a time where uh, like hard rock music was often dominated by LA bands like you know Guns and Roses or or like Rat or Quiet Riot or something like that. Um, so Seattle starts getting a little bit of a leg up and a little bit of an attitude. And I really, I, I always feel like this this moment in uh, the 2010 playoffs, where Marshawn Lynch runs through like eight of the New Orleans Saints on on the way to carrying what I think was like a seven and nine Seahawks team in Pete Carroll's first year, just running over another team and then jumping into the end zone backwards while he's like holding his crotch, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then just I, I believe that the, the local uh the local seismographs actually record a small earthquake because the assembled crowd at quest field just explodes at this and i just feel like that was something that was the first time i feel like seattle sports fans had ever seen someone represent their city and just with complete dominance and swagger you know later on they go on to win a super bowl um still with pete carroll still with marshawn lynch so that's a great moment i don't want i don't want to overlook you know how good some of the mariners teams were in the mid 90s and how great like the sean kemp gary payton connection was and uh sean kemp had his moments of of dominance and swagger as well but it's really that moment with marshawn lynch that i always feel like that's the moment where seattle finally feels like it's confident in its own place and it's not it doesn't define itself relative to los angeles particularly but even like san francisco that it feels confident that it's it stands on its own merits as as a great american city
2: this has been another episode of remember that game please rate review subscribe and check out more episodes